Good morning, Plum Creek. I am really excited to see all of you here today because we're beginning a very important sermon series this morning. We're going to spend the next few weeks hearing what God has to say about eternity. And here's why this is so important. A hundred years from now, you and I will be somewhere, and it won't be here. And you know, we don't, we don't have to stop at a hundred years. Uh, let's fast forward to a million years from now. At that point in the future, you and I will still be somewhere. And I can guarantee that your existence then will be very different than our present reality. But you can stretch this out as far as you want. Even a billion years from now, you and I will be somewhere because everyone spends eternity somewhere. The question is, where will you be? You know, sometimes I like to wander around cemeteries and read the inscriptions on the tombstones. And I know that may seem a little weird or slightly morbid, but cemeteries are fascinating places. I've heard that over in Indiana, there's a cemetery with a tombstone that's over 100 years old. And the inscription says, pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. Now, that in itself gives you something to think about, but there's more to the story. Uh, Sometime later, an unknown person passed by that grave, read those words, and then wrote a reply underneath. The reply says, To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. (laughs) Now, I can't really endorse scribbling on tombstones, but I have to say, I do agree with whoever wrote that. I want to have confidence about where I'm spending eternity. And yes, it's tough to get information about the afterlife because people generally don't come back and tell us what happens after we die. But we can't just ignore this topic. We can't leave it to chance. This is too important. So we're going to spend four weeks focusing on this idea of eternity. Today we're kicking things off with the question, what happens 10 seconds after you die? Just like we do every week here, we're going to look to Scripture. Now, we could get together and share our own ideas and theories about eternity, but that's all they would be just ideas and theories, because we haven't seen the other side of death. None of us could be called an authority on the afterlife. So where do we go for answers? Well, here at Plum Creek, we believe that God has spoken to us through His Word. God has told us everything we need to know. That's why we go to the Bible when we have difficult questions. Now, this morning, we're going to look at several different places in the Bible, but we're going to start in the book of 2 Corinthians. And I'd like to read one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. If you have a Bible or a Bible app with you, you can open up to that chapter. If you don't have one, you could also follow along on the screen. But in this passage, the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of Christians in the city of Corinth. Here's what he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. 
For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I can still remember where I was when God used this passage to speak to my heart. I was at a Christian camp in Illinois sitting on a tree stump beside a little stream. I was 19 years old at the time, and on that particular morning, everyone at camp had been sent out to spend some time alone with God. And so I'm sitting there reading the Bible like I'd done many times, but then I came to that phrase, what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And all of a sudden, it really hit me. If I can see it, it's not going to last. So I started looking around and I saw trees and rocks and I thought, okay, one day those things will be gone. And then I saw the sunlight coming down through the leaves and I thought, wow, even the sun will be gone someday. Then I looked down at myself and I thought, yeah, this even applies to my own body because I can see it. So that means it's only temporary. Now, of course, this wasn't brand new information for me. I knew intellectually that everybody dies, but I don't think that concept had ever become so personal. See, 2 Corinthians 4 communicates a truth that we all know, but it's something we don't like to think about. The truth is, this life is temporary. There are several reasons why we don't like to think about this. A lot of us have fears about death. A lot of us don't want to face the prospect of being separated from those we love. Sooner or later, though, we have to face the reality. And I do agree that it's possible to think about death so much that you're not really living life here. But at the same time, it is a very healthy thing to remember that this life doesn't last forever. Over the last few years, God has been impressing on me that it doesn't matter how long we live. This life is short. So I've been thinking about that a lot. And not too long ago, someone said to me, Doug, I've noticed that lately uh, you've been talking about death more frequently in your sermons. And that may be true, but if I can get personal for a second, I want to share a few possible reasons for that. For one thing, as a minister, I see death on a regular basis. I get to know people here at church, and sometimes people die. As a matter of fact, I'll be speaking at a funeral later today. A sweet woman named Alta Ballou passed away last Wednesday. Some of you knew Alta and her husband, Hilton. They came to first service at Plum Creek, and they sat right over there. Hilton and Alta were married for over 71 years, and they both knew Jesus Hilton passed away last August, and now the two of them are together with Jesus. So that's part of my deal. I encounter death pretty frequently. But there are some other reasons why I've been noticing that this life is fragile and temporary. Just over two years ago, I started having some weird health issues. And I've been through a lot of tests trying to figure out if I'm dealing with something serious all the results we've gotten so far say that I'm basically okay, but for the first time, I've had to face the fact that I won't always be healthy. 
Then, in addition to my own issues, some of you know that my mom has been diagnosed with dementia. It's been over a year since we started seeing changes in her. But in just the past couple of weeks, she's developed some new problems, and her condition right now is very serious. She's in the hospital this morning, and this week I'll be heading down to Tennessee to be with mom and dad, and I would appreciate prayers for both of my parents. And you know, in one way, it's very strange to see my mom like this, because she's always been so sharp and healthy and just alive. But in another way, this is not strange. God told us about this. Like Mike said earlier, there will be a day when our physical bodies just wear out. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but it will happen someday. The fact is, I've, I've looked at the research, and here's what I've found. One out of one people die. <laughs> the Bible says this another way over in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. That verse says, each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. So we all have this appointment on our calendar. Only God knows the date and the time, but it's definitely coming. And if we know this is our future, it only makes sense to prepare for that day. But how do we do that? Well, like I said, there are many ideas and theories about the afterlife, and we should know that a lot of those theories are completely unbiblical I want to give you three unbiblical views of the afterlife. There are more than three, but these are some of the big ones. The first unbiblical view is reincarnation. And that's the idea that we all come back around after we die. And the form you take in your next life depends on how you lived in your previous life. If you're basically good, you might return as a higher life form. But if you live a bad life, you may have to come back as a bug or a snail or a snake. If you're really bad, you might come back as a Duke fan. <laughs> that would be unfortunate. <laughs> Obviously, I'm kidding there, but, but hey, for those of you who just went through our series on Galatians, um, do you see what reincarnation is? It's really a form of legalism, isn't it? Because it's up to you to try to be good enough to achieve that higher state. And when you keep your eyes open, you will see legalistic worldviews all over the place. And don't forget, nobody gets to God that way. But let's move on to another unbiblical view of the afterlife. The second view is universalism. And this has become very popular in recent years. Universalism is the idea that says... No matter who you are, it's all going to work out fine. Now, whatever kind of life you live down here, whatever your beliefs about God, whatever you do with Jesus, everybody ends up in some kind of good place, whether you call it heaven or something else. So how does universalism contradict the Bible? After all, if God loves everybody, wouldn't he be a fan of this idea? Well, the problem is that God is not only loving, He's also holy. He's completely just and good. By nature, He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. So if someone rejects the offer of forgiveness through Jesus, they're basically saying, I choose to pay for my own sins myself. That's a sad choice because that means eternal separation from God. There's one more view that I'll share with you here, and it's called an annihilationism. 
Big word, not easy to say, definitely not easy to spell, but it basically means that's all, folks. When you're annihilated, you just cease to exist. And the Latin word that's in the middle of that big word, it just means nothing. Nothing. There's a version of this view that says, yeah, I believe that some people will exist forever in heaven, but if you don't make it to heaven, then poof, your soul is extinguished. You just don't exist anymore. But as we're going to see over the course of this series, we don't have evidence of that in the Bible. So what does the Bible say about what happens after you die? Well, let's start with a passage that describes what God wants for you. We've read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but let's keep reading in that letter and jump to the beginning of chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians 5.1, Paul writes, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So this is the plan. God made our physical bodies to be a temporary dwelling, kind of like a tent. And you're not supposed to live in a tent long term, right? A tent is inferior to a house. It's not warm like a house. It's not cozy. And over time, a tent develops leaks and the zippers get stuck. So our current bodies were never the long-term plan. God wants to give us an eternal house. And don't miss this. That eternal house is a resurrected body. When we die, we cast off our temporary physical bodies, and only in the resurrected body can we finally feel at home. I don't know about you, but that's a comforting thought that I'll be getting a new body. I'm looking forward to that upgrade. But we're not there yet, are we? So let's read the next few verses. Paul writes, Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. But while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. You know, when I was younger, I didn't quite relate to what Paul says here. But as you get older and you start to face some of the harsh realities of life, you know exactly what Paul means when he talks about groaning and burdens. And again, this is really nothing strange. It's just evidence that this world is not our home. We long to be out of this tent in our resurrected bodies in heaven with God. This is where we want to be, and this is where we were made to be. Check out verse 5. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. God created us to be with Him. And today, if you have a relationship with Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and in that way, God is with us here in this life. But that's no comparison to the future reality of truly being in God's presence. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That was big, what we just read there. Did you catch it? When we are away from the body, 
we are at home with the Lord. But hold on. Who is Paul referring to when he uses the word we here? Does he mean that everybody on earth will one day be with the Lord? No, that would be universalism, wouldn't it? So who is this we? Well, let's remember, Paul is specifically writing to a group of Christians here. So the word we in this passage refers to followers of Jesus. And that means whenever someone dies in Christ, that person is with the Lord immediately. They don't have their resurrected body yet, but we can be confident that they are with Jesus right now. But then what about followers of Christ who still live in these physical bodies? What are we supposed to do? Are we just killing time here? No, look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. So in this life, our goal is not to make a bunch of money or acquire a bunch of stuff or to pursue success or happiness at all costs. Our goal is to please God. Our goal is to build His kingdom and share His love. And that starts right here, right now. And then verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now that's the second time we've encountered this idea of judgment this morning, and we'll come back to that later. But man, we've already picked up a lot from these 10 verses. And before we run out of time, I want to go back to our big question for today. What happens 10 seconds after you die? So using the passage we just read and several other places in the Bible, I want to answer that question by giving you three significant truths. Here's the first one. Ten seconds after you die, you will be wide awake. There are several places in the Bible where we get that impression, but we just saw one of them in 2 Corinthians 5. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So again, if you are a follower of Jesus, here's what will happen on the day of your death. While your loved ones and relatives and friends are grieving and mourning, you will be more alive than you've ever been. You will be completely awake and aware. But now, if you die without Christ, you will also be awake. That leads us to another truth. Ten seconds after you die, you will be full of enormous gratitude or enormous regret. Every person is destined to die, but not everyone will go to be with Jesus. And at the moment when your soul leaves your body, your future will be fixed. Your eternal destiny will be unchangeable. Either you will be in God's presence with a joy that's unimaginable, or you will face a future that, honestly, I wish we didn't have to talk about. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are you familiar with that statement from Jesus? You know, some people like to think of Jesus as this really soft-spoken Mr. Rogers type who never says hard things. But if you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible, you know that's not the case. Jesus said plenty of hard things, especially about the afterlife and eternity. Now, Jesus is full of love, but he's also full of truth. 
His love is actually why He speaks the truth. He tells us the truth because He wants all of us to be prepared for eternity. That leads us to the third thing we need to understand. Ten seconds after you die, you will know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the only hope for eternal life. If you accepted Jesus in this life, you will be grateful forever. But if you rejected Jesus, you will regret that decision forever. You know, we talk about this all the time. You can't get to God, you can't get to heaven by just trying to be a good person. And that's why Jesus said something else that's hard for some people to hear. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, God does love everyone. And everyone is invited to come to God through Jesus. But he won't force you to come against your will. If you tell God, I don't want you in my life, he will honor your wishes. So these are three very significant truths. Ten seconds after you die, you will be wide awake. You will be full of enormous gratitude or enormous regret. And you will know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the only hope for eternal life. It's good to have clarity about these three things. But that still leaves us with a lot of questions, right? Uh, For example, where does a follower of Jesus go ten seconds after death? We said that you go to be with the Lord, but where is that? Are you in heaven at that point? Because there are a lot of passages in the Bible that sound like there's kind of a waiting period before the final resurrection and before the final version of heaven. So how does that work? Well, I've looked at the different passages on the subject, and I'll tell you where I've landed. I agree with a Bible teacher named Randy Frazee who identifies three stages of human existence. The first stage is what he calls life now. And if you can pick up a mirror and breathe on it and fog it up, you are in this stage. And man, compared to all of eternity, stage one is so short. James 4.14 says, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. But then after our brief time in this present world, we experience a second stage, which Randy Frazee calls life in between. After your physical body dies, your soul continues on, whether you've accepted Christ or not. And this is where it's easy to get confused. The Bible does talk about this stage, but unfortunately we don't have a lot of details. I can tell you that stage two is not where you find the streets of gold or the pearly gates. That doesn't come until stage three. In the Bible, this intermediate period is called the place of the dead. In the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word Sheol. In the New Testament, it's the Greek word Hades. Everybody who dies goes to the place of the dead. However, Jesus talks about a specific waiting place for the souls who die in Christ. And this temporary place is called paradise. Jesus tells a very detailed story about this in Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at that story in two weeks. But Jesus Jesus also mentions paradise while he's on the cross. He looks over at the thief who's being crucified next to him, and he says, Truly I tell you, today, that's an important word, today you will be with me in paradise. The great thing about paradise is that you get to be with Jesus immediately, but you're also waiting for something. You're waiting for the final judgment day and the final resurrection 
when you get your new perfected body. So then, when do we get to that final stage? Well, many of you know, the second coming of Jesus is the event that inaugurates our final stage of existence, which is life forever. This is the stage that stretches into eternity. And before it truly begins, we experience what we read about in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. All of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and we will receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So how does that idea come across to you? Is it kind of a terrifying thought, being judged by God so that you can get what you deserve? Well, it certainly could be terrifying, but because of Jesus, it doesn't have to be. Jesus made it possible for anyone to have complete peace about that day. He knew that we are all guilty of sin and rebellion against God, that we all deserve the punishment of death. But Jesus loves us. He loves you. And he went to the cross and he took that punishment of death so we wouldn't have to. And when you give your life to Jesus, his sacrifice is applied as payment for your sins. So here's the verdict for every follower of Christ. Romans 8 verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. If you are covered by the blood of Jesus, God looks at you and he sees someone who is forgiven and clean and fit to live with him forever. And do we deserve that? No, but that's grace. It's the most amazing gift anyone could ever receive. The truth is, though, not everyone has received that gift. There are so many people around us who are disconnected from God. They don't have a relationship with Jesus. And if something doesn't change, they will be separated from God for eternity. And it's like I said earlier, everyone spends eternity somewhere. That's why we're so serious about our mission here at Plum Creek. We know that God has given us the mission of leading people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus because God wants everyone to be with Him forever. We want that too. That's why we celebrate every time we see someone put their faith in Jesus and, and be baptized into Him. You know, two years ago, actually three years ago this month, we started praying for a hundred people to be baptized into Christ here at Plum Creek. And we started filling in the imagine sign in the back of this room. Every time someone is baptized, they put a light bulb into that sign. I don't know if you've noticed, but as of this morning, there is only one empty socket left in that sign. It's been amazing to see God answer those prayers, but as long as there's still one more person who needs Jesus, we're going to keep praying. There is an urgency to our mission because we're here in this stage of existence for such a short time. This life is just a mist. Now, if you've been around Plum Creek for any amount of time, you know that I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I don't want to use scare tactics because I know that it's God's loving kindness that leads us to Him. But I do have to talk about what's real. I can't skip over the hard truth just because it might make us uncomfortable. 
Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about heaven and hell. Next week, we're dealing with the question, what will heaven be like? And two weeks from now, we'll ask, is hell for real? Really? And I'm praying that all of us will be open to what God wants to do in us and through us. Because the reality is, God wants us to do something with this information. If you've never begun a life-changing relationship with Jesus, that's where you start. But once you have that relationship, God calls all of us to partner with him, to lead others to Christ. Every member of this church has a role to play. I want to close by getting a little personal once again. I need to confess something to all of you. I've been at Plum Creek for over seven years now. And when I first got here, I I had a strong sense of urgency about our mission and about eternity. Over time, though, I've let myself get a little distracted. I can remember right before one of my first Easter's here, I grabbed a stack of invitation cards, and and then I went around door-to-door inviting total strangers to church. The last couple years, though, I haven't done that. I've still been inviting people, but I haven't gone as far out of my way as I used to. Like I said, though, here recently, God has been impressing on me that this life is short and eternity is long. So over the next few weeks, we have a challenge for everyone who is a part of Plum Creek. See, Easter's coming soon. We know this is one of the biggest opportunities we have to invite people to church. The average person is more open to visiting a church on Easter than most other times of the year. So here's the challenge. I'm encouraging everyone to invite at least one person to join us for Easter at Plum Creek. We're planning a very special day. We're getting ready to welcome a large number of guests, and we're doing everything we can to communicate the good news about Jesus in a way that everyone can understand it and respond. Here's the thing, though. You know people that I don't know. God has given you the chance to influence someone that others may not be able to reach. So I encourage you to start by praying. In the past, we've talked about praying for your one And here's how we define your one. Your one is a person that God puts on your heart. It's a person who needs Jesus, and they're also within your sphere of influence. And you may have multiple people like that. Most of us do. But your one is the person at the top of your list. So over the next four weeks, your challenge is not only to pray for your one, but also invite your one to Easter. It's as simple as that. This challenge includes leaders, it includes me, we're all in this together. And you know, you don't need any special gifts or skills to invite someone. Uh, You don't need to have the Bible memorized, you don't need to have perfect answers to complicated questions, you just need to care enough to reach out. We can all do this. My six-year-old daughter can do this. It all comes down to these two questions. Do we believe that the Bible is true? And do we really care about people who need Jesus? If the answer to those two questions is yes, then we will let God use us to point people to Jesus. We can't save anyone. That's not our job. And we certainly don't want to treat people like they're some kind of project. Nobody wants to be a project. But everybody wants to be loved. 
Remember, this is why we're made. God created us to love Him and to be loved by Him, both now and forever. We know this life is short, but we're here right now, and we're alive right now. So let's make the most of the time that God has given us. Let's pray. Father, we've talked about some very, very important things today. But you know it's so easy for us to get distracted. Our lives get consumed by temporary things, things that don't matter in the long run. But God, while, while we're here in this moment and we're seeing things clearly, will you just impress on our hearts what matters most. Help us to fix our eyes on you, to fix our eyes on the things that we can't see because those are the things that really last. Those are the things that really matter. Lord, I pray that you will work through your church across the world, but that you'll work through your church right here to help others find hope and life grace and salvation through Jesus. Lord, we want to be used by you for your kingdom, for your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.